Introduction Vesta's wind turbine blade workers occupied the factory at St Cross Newport on 20th of July. They demanded that Vesta's hand over its two Isle of Wight's factories to the government and that the government nationalise them and continue production. The factories were not unionised. Attempts to recruit workers into the Unite Union had been repressed by management, but after a campaign of leafleting and meeting, the workers acted. The occupation made Vesta's central to two big issues, the fight for jobs and the fight to save the planet from destruction generated by profiteering. Geographically, Britain is specially well-placed to use wind energy as a renewable zero-emissions alternative to fossil fuels. On 15th of July, Energy and Climate Change Minister Ed Miliband published a white paper about renewable energy, which calls for 7,000 more wind turbines to be built. Yet, Vesta's sites were Britain's only wind turbine blade factories. After telling workers in 2008 that they would be re-equipping the factories for a more advanced production process in 2009, on the 28th of April, the bosses of Vesta's, a big Danish-based multinational, announced that they were ending production on the Isle of Wight, keeping only a research and development operation. 600 jobs would go. The workers occupied. Vesta's refused to negotiate. On the 6th of August, Government Minister Joan Ruddock met workers and the RMT union, which many workers had joined after the occupation started, but offered only warm words. On the 7th of August, Vesta's finally got and enforced an eviction order against the, the workers. It sacked 11 of those who had occupied, thus depriving them and of their redundancy money. After 7th of August, workers and supporters, local people, environmentalists, socialists from AWL and SWP, maintained a 24-hour picket at the St Cross factory's front gate, and later also at the Marine Gate, the gate through which blades and other large items have to be moved in order to go on barges and to be taken to Southampton. On 22nd of September, large numbers of police finally steamed in to clear the marine gate and open the way for Vesta's to remove blades which had been trapped in the factory since the occupation started. Many Vesta's workers, however, remained committed to carrying on with a broader labour movement campaign for jobs, green jobs, unionised jobs, jobs with decent pay and conditions, and jobs with openings for young people. How Vesta's Workers Became a Power by Martin Thomas It all started on 15th of June when a small group of young members of the Alliance for Workers' Liberty set off <coughs> for the Isle of Wight. They had read in the press about the planned closure of Britain's only winds turbine blade factory operated by the Danish-based multinational Vestas Adventure Keys, East Cows and St Cross Newport on the Isle of Wight. They discussed it among themselves and with other AWL members. They had cast around for contacts to give them a foothold on the Isle of Wight. It wasn't easy. The Isle of Wight both a local government's county and a parliamentary constituency is a safe Tory seat <clears throat> and has been nothing but Tory or Liberal or Lib Dem back to 1832. The Labour Party has never had a strong presence on the Isle of Wight. The Labour vote there has dropped as low as 2.4% in 1983 and has recovered only to 17%. The towns are small, 
Ryde, the biggest by a slight margin over Newport, has 26,000 people. There has been no recent activist left presence. There is no active local Green Party. The island has many advantages as a base for industrial production. The wind turbine blades from the bigger Vestas factory at St Cross, 40 miles long, difficult to transport by a road, can be loaded straight from the factory onto barges to go up the river Medina and over to Southampton docks for shipment all over the world. But prisons are among the island's biggest employers. An unusually large proportion of the population is retired. Unemployment is high. A lot of local jobs are seasonal in the tourist trade, and many enterprising young people have to seek wider opportunities on the mainland. The young eight of your members pitched their tents on a campsite. They made contact with some elderly activists who kept the rides and cows trades council ticking over, and with the island's one Labour County councillor. They began visiting the factories at the shift changes, handed out leaflets, talked to the workers. They found a lot of anger against the investors' bosses, but as yet little confidence that any fight back against the closure was possible. The AWL members made it clear that they were not there to substitute for the workers' own action, or to push workers into doing anything they did not want to do, but they did want the workers to have a chance to discuss collectively what they might do with all the options before them, rather than each one individually feeling helpless in face of the collective organised power of the bosses. With a wider circle of workers' climate action activists mobilised to come to the island, they leafleted in the main towns as well as the factories for a public meeting on the 3rd of July, co-sponsored by Cowes Trade Council and Workers' Climate Action. A hundred people came. Ron Clark, a former convener of the Vistion Enfield plant, spoke about the gains made by the workers' occupation there. But many of the other speakers, established labour movement officials, thought workers could not could do no more than join the Unite Union. There was a handful of members in the factories, though Vestas had stamped on all attempts to unionise seriously and write letters to the government. The campaign still hung in the balance. About half a dozen workers gave contact detail to the AWL members, saying they were interested in further discussion about how the closure should be thought. Over the weekend, 4th to 5th of July, AWL member Ed Maltzby emailed and phoned them. Only one replied. He agreed to meet and talk, and then pulled back, saying he wasn't ready for that yet. By Tuesday the 2nd of July, Ed was phoning the AWL office to say that he was returning home for a bit to recoup his energies. A half dozen workers had his contact details and messages from him, and he would return to the island if they showed interest. As his train approached Waterloo Station in London, Ed got a phone call from a worker asking for a meeting that evening between him and a number of workers from his shop. Ed got off the train at Waterloo and took the first train back to the Isle of Wight in order to make the meeting. A group of workers who wanted to discuss active resistance to the closure had been formed and gradually grew by passing the word on individually. Socialist Worker Party, SWP, members came to the island to join the campaign against closure. On Saturday the 11th of July, some workers joined a session of leafleting and petitioning in the centre of Newport. 
After AWL Summer School on the 11th to 12th of July, where Vestas was a big theme, more AWL members came to the island. By now the Vestas bosses knew that something was afoot, but not what. More and more workers got involved, but the dominant reaction at the factory gates to our leafleting was still and would continue to be right up to the day the St. Cross factory was occupied, that it was too late to do anything about the closure, or putting a brave face on the big blow-to-island jobs that the Vesta's closures would be, that they were glad no longer to have to work under Vesta's regime, and just wanted to take their redundancy money and go, or that in principle some action might be a good idea, but they didn't want to risk losing their redundancy money. On 15th of July, Energy and Climate Change Minister Ed Miliband published a white paper about renewable energy and calling for 7,000 more wind turbines to be built in the coming years. Britain currently has about 3,000 in operation or under construction. The Vesta's closures looked even more absurd and unscrupulous. The redundancy money was poor, twice the statutory minimum. The since Cross Factory had only been open nine years and only a handful of workers have been there since the start, so most workers have had only a short time with the company and stands to get only a few hundred pounds in redundancy pay. But at at that stage, even the small payout seemed a lot to risk. A positive but still uncertain gathering of workers on the 19th of July got closer to discussing definite plans. We brought in AWL members with experience of working as trade union organisers to give workers information on the legalities and logistics of different tactics. The meeting also formulated demands. Although leaflets had been headlined Save Vestas, that were not really what the workers that was not really what the workers wanted. They were glad to be rid of the Vestas bosses. The demand was formulated for Vestas to hand over their plan to the government and for the government to continue production by nationalising the plants under new management. Workers who still wanted to leave should get better redundancy pay. The meet, that meeting also featured a bizarre cross-purposes argument. Someone seemed to suggest hanging a huge union jack over a factory building. Socialists immediately responded that it would not be good to repeat the British jobs for British workers stuff that marred the engineering construction strikes. Workers shook their heads. No, no. The East Cows factory has a huge union jack painted on its waterfront wall and the discussion was about hanging a banner against the closure of it to cover it. On Monday, Vesta's top boss, Paddy Weir, got wind of the plans for occupying at least one of the factories, as eventually he was bound to. Evidently, he didn't feel sure of himself, so he did not want, he did not do what a confident boss would have done and immediately sacked the workers whom he suspected of organising action, struggling at he, the thought that Vestas would eventually have to pay them money for unfair dismissal after an industrial tribunal. He just bawled them out, perhaps thinking on the basis of previous experience that that would be enough to intimidate them. However, there was now a clear risk that Vestas bosses would make new security 
moves to block an occupation. <clears throat> in preparation for the factory closing down, the buses had already changed the normal shift patterns as from Monday the 20th of July, telling both night shift and day shift to come in days and then sending out lots of workers to do courses or job search while the remainder worked on finishing the remaining blades and on clear-up. They might tell more workers to stay away. There was already talk of the bosses bringing in new extra security guards from 20th of July. They might change the locks and security codes. So on Monday evening, 20th of July, a group of workers started the occupation, entering the St Cross factory between shifts and taking control of the management offices. There was no extra security to block them. Because the occupation started earlier than the workers had expected, some who had wanted to take part were unable to, to join in. In the event, that wasn't so bad, because it left a group of more determined and confident workers to organise the majority of the workforce outside the plants. On Monday evening, Paddy Weir soon turned up at the factory in a rage. Very quickly, there were masses of police there. Weir spoke of getting the police to throw the workers out and had to be convinced that legally he couldn't do that. From then until the Wednesday, the bosses tried one hoax threat or ultimatum after another to try to throw the workers off balance. Time and again, the workers were told that they had one hour or two hours to leave, or else they would suffer terrible reprisal, reprisals. The occupying workers stood firm. At 7.45am on Tuesday morning, the rest of the workforce turned up for the start of the shift. Some had been phoned and told to stay away. Those who arrived at the Venture Quays at East Cows plant as well as at St Cross were told by managers standing on the police line to take the day off paid and come back as normal on Wednesday. The bosses were scared that if they let their workers into their workplaces, they would face another occupation in the East Coast plant and a bigger one at St Cross. At that point, the managers thought they could end the occupation within one day. They did not have the measures of their workforce at all. In disarray, Vesta's bosses would say nothing to the media until the end of the week. One reporter from the Times had the phone put down on him when he tried to get a, a, get a comment. Some workers arrived on Tuesday, arriving on Tuesday, did just go home, saying they did not believe that the occupation would achieve anything and their only concern was to keep their redundancy money. But a large number gathered outside the, the front entrance at St Cross. The mood there was sympathetic to the occupying workers, but also at that stage uncertain about what could happen next. Although AWL people had never sought to push workers into doing anything they didn't want, only to create opportunities for them to discuss collectively and to have all the options before them, one worker told us, I'm just here to see that no harm comes to my mates inside as a result of them being riled up by people like you. On the next day, so or so, the mood changed. Eventually, on the Tuesday morning, we were able to get a meeting of the workers outside the factory entrance to elect a committee. We tried to help the workers to organise a rota so that each worker would have set times to be outside the factory, though at that stage it didn't really work. Workers went off to buy food to take in to the occupiers and a gazebo 
to provide some protection from the rain to workers and supporters outside. It rained a lot from Monday evening onwards and throughout the week. After some thrashing around to find an office for the workers' committee, one of the committee members brought his camper van to the site and de facto that became the committee office. Gradually, the minority action of the occupying workers generated an active majority among the workers outside, a collective will to resist. On Wednesday evening, what became the regular 6pm rally at the factory entrance, we heard of yet another ultimatum to the occupiers. The speaker asked the rally, What do we want to say to the lads inside? Stay or go? All the workers, including those who had previously had previous day, might have said that their only real concern was to get the occupying workers out safe and sound, yelling, stay. On the Tuesday, a rush at the police lines had got a few extra workers into the occupation. After that, the police were even more vigilant and stopped food being taken in to the occupiers. The police blockade was eventually broken on the Wednesday on the initiative of some climate camp activists who organised a large number of people to walk calmly through the lines of police and security guards to below the balcony of the management offices and throw the food up. The police knew that when it came down to it, they had no legal authority to use violence against people peacefully walking across the factory forecourt, and there was not enough of them to block everyone by just standing in the way. After that, the police put up fences around the front entrance. Ironically, they were fencing the management in as well as us out. In disarray, the Vestas' bosses were paying their own workers to picket them and erecting fences to reinforce the picket lines. On Thursday morning, 23rd of July, the dispute reached the National Press front page headlines, The Independent. That same day, Ed Miliband felt under sufficient pressure to write a letter to the Guardian making excuses. The police and the Vestas' security guards changed tactics, becoming much more low profile. The gathering in front of the factory entrance was settling down. The roundabouts opposite the factory entrance filled up with tents. The Socialist Party was arriving to join the AWL and the SWP in supporting the workers. Climate activists and a miscellany of other people turned up too. Local RMT activists had been there since the start and other unions were quick with support. The local FBU arrived on Tuesday morning with an immediate donation of £150. On Thursday, RMT General Secretary Bob Crow came down. On Friday, the RMT started recruiting Vestas workers. By the weekend, a number of full-time organisers from the RMT National Office had been posted to Vestas. The Workers' Committee got more organised. Increasing numbers of people went out from the factory entrance to leaflets and visit workplaces and campaign in the towns. Increasing numbers turned up to the 6pm rallies. Confidence grew. From that point, the outcome depended on the debate among the workers about extending the picket into a proper blockade and on what support they could get in the broader left, broader labour movement. Why wind turbine production should be publicly owned. 
<clears throat> A Confrontation with Joan Ruddock by Joan Trevor. The Climate Change Minister Joan Ruddock MP agreed to meet supporters of the Save Vestas campaign during her constituency surgery in Deptford, South London, on 7th of August, the same day that the last Vestas occupiers left the plant on the Isle of Wight. She was standing in for Ed Miliband, Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, who was away in Brazil lecturing them on their responsibilities as a developing nation to mitigate climate change. But that's an aside. The previous day, Ruddock had met two Vestas workers together with union officials from the RMT Unite and the TUC. Question. What was the government... What has the government done to save the jobs at Vestas? Reply. I'll tell you what I told a delegation of Vestas workers. The RMT unites the TUC yesterday. We've done a lot. Months ago, we had noticed notice of the potential closure. We asked Vestas, what help can we give you as a government? There was no help that we could give them. They did not want money. They wanted to move the factory for their own commercial reasons. Let me tell you about their product. The blades they make are 40 metres long and they are not suitable for use in the UK. Question. But they can convert the factory to make blades that are suitable. Reply. They can convert the factory. There was discussion about that. The workers told us that until recently the conversion was going to go ahead. I don't know the details of just why that did not go ahead. It's, it is not just here. They have made a large number of people unemployed in Denmark as well, where they are based. Question. Why not nationalise the plants? You have st stepped in to nationalise the banks because there was a need to shore up the financial system. The government has set up very high targets for expanding renewable energy and very high targets for cutting carbon emissions. Is that not a similar emergency that would justify the government stepping in? Reply, it's not up for sale. We can't just nationalise a whole company. Question, not the company, the plants. We cannot let meeting the targets depend on the business decisions of private companies. We will not meet the targets if we do that. <coughs> Reply, we will meet these targets. We are not going to nationalise. You have a different model. We have offered Vestas £6 million to develop the R&D facility on the Isle of Wight. That will be 150 jobs. It's not 600, but it is something. Vestas will accept £6 million for that. We will meet the targets on the present model of letting the market do it. We do agree on the general point of keeping manufacturing jobs in the UK. We are having ongoing discussions about how we keep and develop the skilled manufacturing jobs here. Question. Closure of the plants is devastating for the Isle of Wight's employment situation, which is already bad, with 100 applicants for each job. What will you do to save this community? Reply. We have set up a task force with a South East England Development Agency, we are putting in place for place this support structure and continue to work to maximise business startups. Vestas might keep the plant and reopen again when conditions are right. Question. 
Why should progress rely on business decisions of private firms? Reply, you all have a different philosophy from me about what is the best way to produce jobs. Question, can we subsidise travel between the island and the mainland so that young people can have more mobility? Travel is very expensive at the moment. Reply, I don't know, that is not my department. Question, you have a belief in the market, that's your philosophy, but what about being practical? Have you done a feasible study into whether it would be better economically overall to nationalise the plants? Reply, there has not been a feasibility study because we are not going to nationalise because we are sticking to our principles. Question, your belief in markets is like a religious belief. Reply, we live in a market economy. All the advanced economies think the same. Question, we live in a mixed economy. There is a lot of state intervention in the economy and the balance shifts back and forth depending on politics. These companies do not do what they do out of love for the people who make the profits for them. They go where profits are highest. What do you think would happen to the workers occupied who draw attention to this issue? Reply, we will look at the issues raised by workers about their jobs. I've asked my opposite numbers in the departments of work and pensions to look at what can be done for the workers. Question, will you undertake a feasibility study? Reply, it's not appropriate. The government does not want to produce, want to be producers of wind turbines and we do not want to be bankers. Question, not even to save the environment. The Tories nationalised Rolls-Royce. Reply, that's another story. Question, nationalisation is what happened from with East Coast mainlines. You nationalised it while you look for another buyer. Can't you do that with this plant? Nationalisation doesn't have to be like the nationalisations of the 1970s. Reply, we're pulling out all the stops short of nationalisation. End of questions and answers. Ruddock's basic argument is that the capitalist market can provide the solution to climate change. She says that not nationalising investors is a matter of sticking to our principles. The government claims that the shift that we need to make to use renewable energy, including wind energy, is best achieved by helping the markets in renewable energy to grow when private companies involved in the sector to make profits. The market is really only the right of capitalist companies to seek maximum profits where they can. Companies like BP can shift into renewables if that looks more profitable or out if it doesn't. The government is prepared to juggle with taxes and to offer incentives such as the £6 million it gave to investors to invest in research and development on the Isle of Wight. But if the market does not allow companies like Vestas to make as much profit in the UK as they can make elsewhere, e.g. Colorado, USA, where most of the Isle of Wight work is going, and the government's attempts to bend the market fail, then that's it. The government will not nationalise the industry or take on the development of renewable energy in the public sector. That, for Ruddock, is principle. The contrast with the government's attitude to the banking sector is stark. The financial system must be shored up, even if that means nationalisation. But the climate? Leave that to the market. Ruddock insists 
that the UK will meet its targets for CO2 reduction by continuing on the tracks that it is going down now, but the figures so far do not bear that out. Ruddock's statement that the government does not want to make wind turbines or run banks begs the question, what does the government want to do? On this trend, it only it is only a matter of time before Ruddock states that the government doesn't want to run hospitals or schools either. The government will regularly pri- will regulate private trade and commission public services, and that is all. In other words, vital services will only be, be provided as, when and how they make profit for private companies. Companies relying on public contracts will obviously try to get away with providing as little as they can for the money they are paid. Meanwhile, when the government accepts private companies as partners, it implicitly takes the side of those companies in any disputes it has with its employees. That is very clear in the Vestas dispute. Of all the questions that we asked Ruddock, the one she seemed most hostile to answering was whether the government should press for reinstatement of the Vestas workers who were sacked for occupying their plant. All she would say was that she she would take to her opposite numbers in the Department of Work and Pensions. She would talk to her opposite numbers in the Departments for Work and Pensions. About what? Workers getting the dole they are entitled to anyway without her talking. Vesta's workers are adamant on that they want to continue making wind turbine blades but do not want to continue working for Vesta's. They want to work for the good of the whole community instead, in a nationalised plant with their management accountable to them. They can see that the market will provide neither decent jobs nor the necessary transition to a sustainable economy. Joan Ruddock cannot because she has blinded herself with the new labour principle. An Activist's Diary How the Vestas Campaign Started by Daniel Rawnsley. I remember first hearing about a wind turbine factory on the Isle of Wight being shut down at the Workers' Liberty Conference back in May. We decided that someone should go down there. Why did I volunteer? We'd been talking about volunteerism, the necessary element in socialist politics of making things happen by willpower and initiative. I travelled to the island on the 15th of June with two other AWR members Ed Maltby and Pet Rolf, and stayed there, stayed for a couple of days to make contact with local labour movement activists. Members of the local trades councils had been campaigning around Vestas, but without making much Broadway. Local labour councillor Jeff Lumley offered his support, but was unwilling to get involved in very militant action. We met the local Unite full-time official Brian Kent. When we raised the idea of holding a public meeting, he told us we were pissing in the wind. We also stood at the factory gates, trying to figure out what what the shift times were and talking to anyone we could find. Eventually went back to London to work from the AWL office to mobilise activists to bring the bring to the Isle of Wight to build for the public meeting which we had decided on despite Brian Kent's advice. We all had very little experience building industrial campaigns, but it was good to know that we could phone the office for practical advice from older comrades. 
we returned to the island again with a list of people who would join us over the coming days. I think there were as many as eight people at one point, and we managed to cover a lot of space, leafleting in towns and at both factories in Newport and Cowes. As we stood outside factories, I began to learn how to talk to people about their work and that it's most important, firstly, to listen. In many cases, you start just by repeating back to people what they've already told you and convincing them it's important and useful to be angry about mistreatment. Our initial activism had already put management ill at ease. Paddy Weir, the boss at Vestas, had come out one day to try to intimidate me and another activist, Benny. I think he was honestly surprised to see someone standing up to him and he had obviously... He had absolutely no reply to the fact that he hadn't provided adequate health and safety gear for the workers, some of whom were suffering from skin disorders because of the resin they worked with. The day of the meeting approached and I began sleeping less and less. I didn't know what to expect. In fact, over a hundred people came and the majority were workers. Four police officers came to stand outside the meeting. They'd been warned to expect a breach of the peace. Management had put extra security on the plants over the weekends after the meeting. But in some ways the meeting was very disheartening. It was overly weighted with union bureaucrat speakers who went on for too long about joining a union so that the unions could be helped to find other jobs. Ron Clark, former convener of Vistion Enfield and Ed Maltzby, spoke from the platform and offered a straightforward message on the importance of an occupation. When a discussion at the back amongst, amongst the workers began, independently of the chair, it was quickly squashed. We attempted to speak to as many people as possible, but we ran into the same perspective time and again. I'm up for it, but no one else will do anything. It's not possible. We managed to get contact details for a few workers, mostly young people, who were getting very low redundancy payments. Eventually, a small group of five workers began to meet and discuss tactics and to grow. At the AWL summer school on 10th to 12th of July, Pat Rolf said he thought there was a 20% chance of an occupation. Only eight days later, the occupation was on. I returned to the island hours before the occupation began. I rushed down to the factory to see what was going on and found a group of people milling around outside and banners hanging from windows inside. Timeline of a campaign. 28th of April. After telling workers in 2008 that they planned to refit the factories in 2009 to produce larger blades with a better production process. The Danish-based multinational Vestas announced instead that it will close the Isle of Wight turbine f blade factories, the only such factories in Britain. 15th of June. Workers' liberty activists arrive in the Isle of Wight to start leafleting and talking to workers about the Vestas factory closures and ways to resist it. 3rd of July. Workers' Climate Action and Cows Trade Council call a public meeting to discuss campaigning against the closure of the Vestas factories. Two weeks starting 6th of July. A minority of workers begin to discuss action 
as the conversation spread, the idea grows that there are alternatives. Meanwhile, public campaigning against the closure continues on the streets of the Isle of Wight. Wednesday the 15th of July, government publishes a white paper calling for 7,000 extra wind turbines in Britain in coming years. 3,000 are currently operating or being installed. Monday the 20th of July, Vestas management hear about the conversations and try to forestall action by threatening workers. 7.30pm, workers decide that they should move before the management try further preemptive action and occupy this and cross factory. From Tuesday the 21st of July, Vestas bosses tell all other workers at Venture Keys as well as St. Cross to stay home on full pay instead of working. Workers rally outside the St. Cross front gauge. They elect a committee to organise their campaign. Management make repeated empty threats against the occupiers. They also refuse to let in food. Support comes from FB comes in from FBU, Unison, SW, CWU, GMB, PCS and especially from the leaders of the Portsmouth RMT branch, which organises the Portsmouth IOW Isle of Wight ferries. Wednesday 22nd of July, a families and community campaign is set up to back the Vestas workers. Thursday the 23rd of July, the Vestas story reaches the front page of the National Press, The Independent. Ed Miliband writes an evasive letter to the Guardian about Vestas. Vestas bosses start supplying food to the workers, but serve summonses for a court hearing on 29th of July for a possession order. RMT leader Bob Crow comes to Vestas and offers RMT lawyers to help the workers. Friday the 24th of July, many Vestas workers join RMT so that it can represent them with the Vestas bosses. 300 people march from Newport Town Centre to the St. Cross factory. Saturday 25th of July, Vestas bosses start giving the occupiers hot food. Tuesday the 28th of July, Vestas, Vestas bosses issue notices of dismissal to 11 workers. Wednesday 29th of July, court hearing on Vestas bosses claim for a possession order, case adjourned to 4th of August. Saturday, the 1st of August, police and Vestas bosses allow RMT to take extra food into the factory. However, this pro- proves to be a one-off. Monday, the 3rd of August, workers' climate action activists show solidarity with workers by supergluing themselves to block the entrance to the government's Department of Energy and Climate Change. The TUC puts out a statement calling on the government to intervene to save jobs. On Tuesday the 4th of August, <clears throat> 16 union leaders publish a stronger statement of support. Leaders of Unite, Unison, GMB and CWU are not among the 16. Vestas bosses win their possession order in court. Activists occupy the roof of the Vestas factory at Ventures Keys in East Cows and use its prominent waterfront position to display solidarity banners. Thursday, 6th of August, Climate Change Minister Joan Ruddock meets RMT Investors Workers and TUC and Unite Reps. She offers warm words but no commitment. 
claims the government tried to buy the Vestas factories, but Vestas refused. Government agrees to continue talks with RMT. Friday, 7th of August, occupiers evicted. Despite workers' climate action mobilising 25 activists from London to join the Isle of Wight pickets from 3am, occupiers can remain defiant. At the 6pm rally at the St Cross factory gate, they call for pickets to be continued and to build up into a blockade. Saturday 8th of August, workers and supporters marching from a rally in Newport Town Centre briefly reoccupy the factory grounds. Sunday 9th of August, well-attended meeting of Vesta's workers and supporters in Newport debates strategy for the next phase. Monday 10th of August, workers and supporters start a presence at the back gate of the Newport factory. Vesta's bosses responded by erecting fences all across the back of the factory. Wednesday 12th of August, National Day of Action, five rallies on the Isle of Wight, meetings and protests all over the country. Workers' climate action activists occupy South East England Development Authority offices. Friday the 14th of August, the East Cows occupiers come down from the roof. Back pay and redundancy money goes into workers' bank accounts. The workers continue the, continue the campaign with a continued picket, a demonstration in Ryde on 15th of August, and plans for a National Day of Action on the 17th of September. Monday 17th of August, Vestas bring in its clean-up team, but workers picket the factory gates in protest. Workers and supporters stage sit-in picnic protest at local job centre. Tuesday 18th of August, Vestas bosses announced their latest financial results. They expect revenue to rise by 20% to 7.2 billion euros this year and the operating margin of, of profit to be between 11% and 13%. Friday the 4th of September, Vestas, Vestas ship blades from the Venture Keys factory, East Cows, but seeing a sizable blockade at the marine gate of the St. Cross factory Newport holds back there. Wednesday 16th of September, Isle of Wight Council gets legal letters delivered to the blockade at the Marine Gate, warning about action to move people from there. Thursday 17th of September, Second National Day of Action. Tuesday 22nd of September, 120 police raids the camp set up by workers and supporters at the Marine Gate and clear the way for Vesta's bosses to move the blades. We will build the sustainable society by Patrick Rolfe. The action taken at the Vesta's wind turbine plant demonstrates a realization on the part of two social movements that they are inextricably linked. The environmental movement has realized that the only system capable of making the economic changes required to achieve sustainability is one of democratically controlled social production. In parallel, the socialist movement has realized the imminence of environmental destruction. We cannot wait until the democratization of production before we build a sustainable economy. The seeds of a new society, socially and environmentally sustainable, must be germinated in the rotting corpse of the old. Capitalism can't save the climate. 
it couldn't even eradicate poverty, provide decent education for all, or make the trains run on time. We may have only a few years to transition to low-carbon economy. We have an ageing population and persistent levels of poverty here and all over the globe. Yet at a time when there is so much work to be done in society, factories, offices, shops and other workplaces are closing. Unemployment is on course to hit 3 million next year. Debates in the mainstream press only consider how many social programmes and research programmes will have to be cut in order to pay for wasteful PFI schemes, bankers' bailouts and inflated military spending. The governments are handing money to those who have been destroying the planet and exploiting its people for the last three decades, while taking from those who have the capacity to save both from oblivion. The logic behind this is simple. The state will seek to maintain the rule of capital at all costs. Shareholders and company bosses who can pay to protect themselves from the effects of climate change will take whatever they want from the state, will squeeze whatever they can from the worker and the ordinary consumer and will oppose any productive technology that challenges centralised capitalism, high profit margins and easy exploitation of labour. The recent CBI report, which supported clean coal and nuclear power, using outdated assumptions that a National Grids report released a week earlier had thoroughly debunked, confirms this. From investors to total, corporations seek the highest profit margin. There is no necessary link between this aim and sustainable production for social need. We, the workers, can and should decide what is socially useful and only we can build a sustainable economy. We have to use our own social power to change the way production occurs. The source of all power lies ultimately in production. Products are just as often used as tools of oppression as they are goods for consumption, and the profits made in production are split between ensuring on the one hand the luxury and on the other hand the power of individual capitalists. Profits are not only used to buy ivory, back scratches and cocaine, they are also used to rearrange workplaces and society to make social changes more difficult and to devise complex strategies and systems to squeeze the most out of every individual worker. It is only by seizing control over production, by deciding what is produced and how it is produced, that we can take back control of society and defeat the destructive logic of profit. The Vestas workers have taken the first step towards this. When their jobs were threatened by management, they answered, Why do you want to... Why do you get to decide who is useful and who is not? The workers occupied their plants, all the people on the picket lines and everyone demonstrating and supporting their campaign have taken action that questions the right of private owners to determine what society produces. Workplaces are closing all over the country on the say-so of bosses, bank managers or the government. Workplaces that could be doing some of the vital work that needs to be done over the coming decades. Chorus face, faces closure when <clears throat> steel will be needed for turbines and, t- and tidal power stations. Nortel closes when thousands of call centre workers are needed to give poli- medical advice about the flu virus car 
plants at Vistion close when they could be converted to producing wheelie bins and recycling technologies. Green jobs are not just jobs in wind energy or cons- conservation. A green job is any job that we, as the vast majority of ordinary rational working class people, decide is useful to society. The only way we will obtain such jobs is by occupying our workplaces and by planning with each other to build a sustainable future, fighting the boss, the bureaucrats and the capitalists every step of the way. Developing the Resistance into a Political Campaign by Martin Thomas Chairing a Vestas Workers' Rally in Ryde, Isle of Wight, on 15th of August, Mike Godley, one of the workers who occupied the, the Newport factory from 20th July until evicted on 17th, 7th of August, read out web posts which attacked outsiders in the campaign. The postings claimed that socialist and other activists who had come to the Isle of Wight from the mainland had manipulated the workers. To great applause, Mike Godley refuted the attacks. The socialists and environmental activists have been welcome, he said, and they provided valuable help to a struggle which continues to be the Vestas workers' own. Before the Vestas campaign started, no socialist or environmental activist groups were visible on the Isle of Wight. Activists from the Alliance of Workers' Liberty arrived on the island on the 15th of June to leaflet and talk with workers on the Vestas factory gates and to make contact with the not very strong labor, local labour movement. Vestas had blocked union organisations in its factories. With other workers' climate action people, the AWLers built a public meeting jointly sponsored by Workers' Climate Action and Cows Trade Union Council on 3rd of July. From soon after that, as discussions among workers about a factory occupation developed, members of the Socialist Workers' Party, SWP, from the mainland started spending time on the island. From the first hours of the occupation, on the 20th of July, the roundabout outside the Vestas Newport factory front entrance became a gathering point for workers and supporters. Local people from a range of backgrounds joined the, cli- the crowd. A group of four climate camp activists arrived for a day on Wednesday 22nd of July and made a very useful contribution. As time went on, more climate camp and other environmental activists arrived, especially after the big green gathering set for 29th of July was cancelled. The biggest single influx of mainland supporters, a contingent of 25 socialists, anarchists and environmentalists from London, was organised by Workers' Climate Action on the 7th of August, the day the occupiers were evicted. Five main elements, with many overlaps and exceptions, made up the roundabout community. Workers, local supporters, AWL, SWP and climate camp people It did well at combining diversity with unity in action. The SWP at Vestas was in a different mode from elsewhere. It worked chiefly at proving itself the best builder of the campaign, putting much energy into leafleting and organising for demonstrations of support from on the island and using contacts through the Campaign Against Climate Change, where SWPers hold leading positions, and the unions to set up solidarity meetings around the country. 
ATWL members did a lot of leafleting and visiting workplaces too. Climate camp activists, on the whole, were less interested in that sort of activity, but they made a contribution which the socialist organisations at our present level of development probably could not have made. It was the first four climate camp activists to arrive who organised the first successful rush through the police lines to get food to the occupiers on Wednesday the 22nd of July. At that time, the Vestas, bosses and the police were trying to block all food supplies. Climate Camp and other non-violent direct action people organised many other successful actions, most spectacularly the occupation of the roof of the East Cows Vestas factory from 4th to the 14th of August. Soon, most of the workers active in the campaign recognised that prejudices about these people may be being eco-terrorists were misplaced. The courage, imagination and skills of the environmentalists made an irreplaceable contribution, helping to large the workers and maybe some socialists' tactical ideas and doing it with very few arrests. Such cross-fertilisation of workers and environmental environmentalist struggle is one of the main aims of workers' climate action, a group in which AWL has been active from the start. One of AWL's chief concerns throughout has been to promote and help facilitate self-organisation. Self-organisation of the workers initially interested in occupying, election and organisation of a committee by the workers outside the factory, organisation of a families and community committee, organisation of local support groups in different towns of the Isle of Wight, general meetings of supporters or supporters and workers at the roundabout. To our mind, organisation is is not just organisational, it is political. The way the working class transforms itself from a scattering of atomised individuals, each one largely powerless in the markets, economy and in the workplace, into a force is by organising, discussing and establishing an independent collective purpose and will. Self-organisation does not happen automatically. Workers have to be convinced of it. Organisation requires collective, collectively decided direction. So we have also to try to assess things without defeatism, but soberly at each stage in the campaign to deduce best policies and to promote debate around them. At the same time, we have tried to educate ourselves and others with reading and discussions about lessons from working class history. None of that stops us from having friendly unity in action with activists who have other priorities. When we proposed having general meetings at the roundabout, a couple of climate camp activists first responded, What's the point? The SWP goes leafleting and we do the cooking. Everyone is happy doing what they want. Why have meetings? But once the meeting started, the climate camp activists were very constructive. There was more of a problem with the SWP, often quick to say, no more talking, there's leafleting to be done, let's go. At Vestas, the SWP made a good positive contribution. The deficiency, deficiencies of the SWP here as a serious social socialist group have not been lapses such as any group is bound to make, but limitations of the SWP at its best. It has been 
much more concerned about using its SWP machine to prove itself the best builder than to argue for or promote wider working-class self-organization. Few of its leaflets and speeches have got much beyond a combination of a few populist ideas. Capitalism, bad. Bankers, bad. Anger, good. Action, good. SWP, brilliant. The whole method was epitomized by the SWP's big campaign, pushed at Vesta's for many weeks to get people along to a demonstration at Labour Party conference on 27th of September. The demonstration had originally called <coughs> called by the colleague, college lecturers union UCU as a lobby for jobs, education and peace, but was rebranded by the SWP as Rage Against Labour. Rage Against Labour? The Tories and the UKIP dislike Labour. Obviously, this was meant to be a different rage, so the SWP clarified by stressing specific reasoned objectives. No, the organised socialists, the SWP, were less specific about their aims and strategies than the UCU union bureaucrats. In the end, the 27th of September demonstration may be 1,500 strong, mostly SWP members plus others they had brought along from union branches or campaigns they are involved in, were loud and had lots of banners, but it plainly had no effect on Vestas or the government. A demonstration of that sort could have been useful in rallying for specific sharp demands and thus helping to organise a fight for those demands in the labour movement. In fact, however, it was a catch-all effort, a demonstration about having a demonstration rather than a demonstration for anything in particular. At Vestas, the SWP ventured distinctive ideas on three main occasions. For 29th of July, the first court hearing on the Vestas boss's move to get a possession order, they effectively advocated a general strike on the Isle of Wight. Quotes, every bus worker, every council worker, every worker on the ferries to show up at their courtroom instead of going to work. End quotes. Such talk just fills the space for proper strategic debate with unrealistic noise. The vested workers in the RMT got talks with the government on 6th of August. Workers' representative Mike Godley initially reported back rather despondently that as far as he could see, the government was sympathetic, doing all it could, but unable to do anything. SWPR Jonathan Neal told the factory gate rally that we were halfway to victory and needed only to clinch the commitments. At a strategy meeting on the 9th of August, shortly after the occupiers were evicted, the SWP put all its emphasis not on picketing or any activity at the factories, but on a long campaign of meetings and demonstrations around the country centred on two days of action. The days of action were not a bad idea, though the second one, 17th of September, was surely scheduled on SWP insistence for two later date. But the idea that they could ever be decisive and the practice of pulling the central organisers from among the workers away from the factory with the justification of building for the day of action did not help. Mostly the SWP dismissed all strategic debate. The Green Party's response was poor. The Green Party trade union group turned up with a stall for a day or so, but that was about it. Smaller left groups did little about festers. Maybe you can put that down to lack of resources. 
With the Socialist Party, you could not. Though not a large group, the SP has areas of strength in nearby Southampton and Portsmouth. The SP turned up in some numbers to the Vestas picket for a short time once the occupation had got going. Then, soon after the occupiers were evicted, they stopped doing so, sending only occasional individuals to occasional demonstrations. Like AWL and SWP, they promoted their own papers and leaflets. Fair enough. Unlike AWL and SWP, they showed little interest in leafleting and so and so on for the broad campaign. Maybe the SP leaflets were so in, insightful that this matters little. On the contrary, they reflected the idea that Marxism means switching off your brain and using stereotype phrases like mass action as cure-alls. For example, when climate camp activists got food to the occupiers and thus forced the Vestas bosses to stop providing food, the SP rebuked them. It should be done, quotes, not through short-term stunts, but by mobilising hundreds of people to pressure on everything, pressure on everywhere we can, end quotes. Aha, now we know the answer to the problem of no dinner in the St. Cross factory, mass action everywhere. Mostly the SP leaflets were about urgent, urging us to vote SP or for some coalition in, including the SP at the coming general election. The cited grounds that workers need a, quotes, political party that has sent its leaders to the picket and stands shoulder to shoulder with the Vestas workers, end quotes. On that criterion, the SP comes out no better than Lib Dems. One local councillor, a maverick Lib Dem, but a Lib Dem, was very active supporting the pickets. The local Lib Dem parliamentary candidate turned up from time to time, offering vague sympathy. The Lib Dem parliamentary frontbencher for energy, Simon Hughes, came to the picket line and, initially at least, I think later debates swung opinion, got a favourable response from some workers and some climate camp activists. One of the most active climate camp people from the mainland at the roundabout is a Lib Dem councillor in her hometown. Yet this is the, the same Simon Hughes that boasted when standing for London Mayor that he would see off the RMT, the same Lib Dem party that has policy to ban all strikes in essential services, the same Lib Dem party that is positioning itself to form a coalition with the Tories in case of a hung parliament. Oddly, when Workers' Committee members were questioning Simon Hughes and local Tory MP Andrew Turner, they addressed them as representatives of government, despite both representing opposition parties. Hughes and Turner did not contradict them much, since they did not disagree much with government's policy on vesters. But that a view of government as a sort of joint affair of all their parties, more or less indistinguishable in their distance from everyday life, seems plausible, shows how far democracy in Britain has withered. The local Labour Party has related to Vestas as if it is overwhelmed with shame about the Labour government. A number of local Labour Party members gave a big donation to the Workers' Fund and brought its members to the demonstrations, but there was no Labour Party profile at all, 
Labour Party people never identified themselves as Labour. A Vestas campaign should feed into a broader battle for jobs, for workers' rights and for green policies on the island. For that, a socialist organisation on the island is needed, one that can set itself to studying and educating as well as agitating, and one that promotes the self-organisation of a broader local labour movement and a working-class unity in action. Sparking the struggle, seeing it through. Discussion among ATW activists Bob Sutton, Dan Randall, Ed Maltby, Martin Thomas, Stuart Jordan, Vicky Morris. On 20th of September, two days before police finally broke the Newport factory blockade, some of the AWL activists involved in the Vestas campaign talked over the experience. Martin Thomas. The Vestas bosses announced that they are going to close the factory on the 28th of April, but there wasn't much campaign against the closure until three AWL members travelled to the Isle of Wight from the 15th of June. There aren't many examples in our experience or any other experience of a factory occupation being triggered by a small group of people coming and giving out leaflets and talking with the workers. So what allowed it to happen and what are the lessons? Dan Randall. The lessons are multifaceted, but a fundamental one for me is to do with the AWL itself. It was the culmination of a number of years of serious work around these, this question, the theoretical work, work on ecology we've done, looking back at classical Marxist ideas about the metabolism between humanity and nature, the activist work around climate camp and building workers' climate action, climate action. Our general culture around pr- producing workplace bulletins and having an industrial perspective, that's all part of the DNA of the AWL. It's what's equipped Ed, Pat, Rolf and Dan Rawnsley to go down to the Isle of Wight and do what they did. The SWP was sniffing around the factory before we were, but gave up because they couldn't see quick results. What they did was not something that any left group could have given, given luck. Stuart Jordan. The conditions were pretty ripe for an intervention. Vestas was one of the biggest private employers on the Isle of Wight, an area with very high unemployment. It was sacking 600 workers after treating them badly while they worked there at Maltby. Things depended on the qualities of the small group of workers inside the factory who first approached us. They had a particular mentality, a sort of militant sensibility. It hadn't come from previous trade union experience. It was more a cultural thing. Some of them had travelled widely. They'd read. One was interested in permaculture. I hadn't even heard of Vestas until the SWL conference at the end of May, but other comrades had done research and equipped me, Pat and Dan Rawnsley, with a list of contacts. Bob Sutton. We didn't start with their ready-made, highly developed ability to help workers organise, but we did know what doing that looked like. We had an idea in our heads of what we should be doing, and in the course of the struggle, we've very much grown in our ability to make that idea a reality. I've been very involved in the AWL's environmental movement work, but I'm not sure how critical that was. I'm not sure that it would have been so different had we gone to a washing machine factory. 
our environmental perspective was more something that kicked in after the initial stages. Vicky Morris. Persistence was central. It's illustrated by the story of 7th of July, three weeks after starting the campaign and three days after the big meeting on the closure on 3rd of July, Ed had drawn a blank with all the workers who'd suggested at the meeting that they might be interested in talking further about resisting the closure. He decided to return home for a break. As his train got to a Waterloo station, he finally got a phone call from a worker interested in talking. So he turned back to Waterloo and went back to the Isle of Wight again. But that persistence makes you very tired sometimes, but you have to accept that class struggle has its own logic and rhythms, and you've got to bend to them. Persistence is also central to our attitude in the campaign as a whole. We're seeing it out to the end, seeing it through with the people who started it. Ed, the fact that we chose Vestas was to do with our ecological ideas. While we were engaging with workers there, the work we've we'd done on seeing workers' control as central to an agency for solving ecological crisis allows us to deal with issues that we encountered, such as the incredible wastefulness of the company, like the fact that workers were more pissed off with the poor health and safety than they were with many other issues. Because we were able to draw analogies between capitalist environmental degradation and capitalist workplace degradation of workers' bodies, we were able to respond intelligently to a lot of the issues raised. Also, the, the experience at Vestas has allowed us to teach a lot of environmental activists about some basic socialist ideas, especially people in the climate camp movement. We've given the notion of worker struggle as an agency real grip. Bob, we did punch above our weight. I suppose you could describe that as being a bit off balance in terms of the resources we put into investors as against other campaigns. Our ecological politics had a dimension to our solidarity and provided very quick answers in the conversation you have when coming from outside the Isle of Wight about why do you see this as your problem. The implications of climate change raises revolutionary politics very quickly. Bringing in Ron Clark from Vistion occupation to the meetings on 3rd of July was, I think, a key catalyst. Martin, we should recognise that there was a lot of luck in it. We mightn't, we might have done it all and had nothing happen. It shows the merits of being off balance. If you try to do everything in a balanced way, you'll just give a few seconds attention to every struggle. It's quite common with us, as with other socialist groups, that we'll go along to a campaign, give out leaflets, sell a few papers and come away again. We're a small organisation and our resources are spread thinly. Best to show what you can do if you put in more sustained effort. But the story of what happened between 15th of June and the occupation starting on 20th of July isn't just the story of the AWL relating to the Vestas workers. It's also the story of how the initial group of workers who started discussing resistance to the closure after 3rd of July became larger and began to change the thinking of a larger body of workers. As late as the very day that the factory was occupied on the gates, you still had most workers saying, yeah, it's bad, but nothing can be done. But there was a process by which one group of workers changed the thinking of another. 
it's important not to see the workforce as a homogenous mess or to see us as a homogenous mess because we were changed by it too. The end of the first phase of the campaign was the public meeting sponsored by Cows Trade Council and Workers' Climate Action held on the 3rd of July. Stewarts, that meeting had to be legitimate. It had to have the look of a respectable labour movement affair. Unfortunately, that meant a lot of full-time officials who saw their job as talking down any prospect of struggle. But it was important that Cows Trade Council was hosting the meeting and Ron Clark was on the platform and he had something different to say. It's also it's always a problem being pro-trade union with non-union workers when you know how large the weight of a conservative officials is in the unions today. But on the whole, I don't think the meeting played out at all badly. Bob, the involvement of other people from Workers' Climate Action, people like Sam Wade from the IWW, was important in building the 3rd July meeting. Ed, in the course of the campaign, Patrick Rolfe and I have kept on repeating a quote from Lenin about the importance of finding the next link in the chain and grasping it. That was something we had to do at that meeting. When I stepped off the podium and when workers started looking disgruntled and leaving in disgust off the speech from John Rouse, the Unite's National Trade, U- New Trade Group Secretary, who told everyone Unite would help them sign on the dole, I remembered something Ron Clark had taught me earlier in the week about the importance of identifying potential leaders. I ran around with my little notebook taking numbers, making contacts, talking to to workers about the things that that could be done next, like building up a telephone list and sounding out people on the shop floor. Martin, after the meeting, you had the period from 3rd of July to 20th of July when the occupation started and when the first phase of the occupation to 24th of July when RMT full-time officials arrived. The, the period 3rd of July to 20th of July was mostly about the initial group of workers who got in touch with Ed's meeting collectively, talking to other workers, drawing new people in, building momentum. Eventually, on the 20th of July, someone snitched to the management. The management tried to intimidate the workers who they thought might be involved in trying an occupation. The workers decided that they had to move quickly, quicker than they would have done otherwise, and occupy before management changed the locks or tried something else preemptive. They occupied on the evening of the 20th of July. We were very much helpers at that stage, canvassing other trade unionists on the island for support, leafleting on the streets, trying to brief workers on what's involved in organising an occupation. On the morning of Tuesday the 21st of July, we were in front of the factory with lots of workers milling around. The workers were not there as a picket line. They had turned up to work as usual. Managers had told them to go home again, but they wanted to stay around to see what was happening. Dan. On the 21st of July, I think we were right to make a priority of getting a committee elected by the workers outside the gates. That was important in terms of the ownership of the dispute and making sure the dispute was led by the workers themselves. Martin, looking back on it, I think that on the evening of of the 20th of June, we should have spent more time talking amongst ourselves and working precisely 
working out precisely what we needed to do in the next few days. At that time, I thought we would have Unite's officials down within a day or so, trying to take over. I was keen to get a workers' committee elected because I figured the workers needed a collective way of asserting themselves and trying to retain control. It hadn't crossed my mind that Unite wouldn't show up at all and that RMT would arrive instead. Richard Howard, secretary of the Portsmouth branch of the RMT, was there very quickly and played a very important role. We didn't expect that. The evening before, we had tried to phone him to see if he was supportive, but had been unable to reach him. What would we have done if the RMT hadn't turned up? I think we would have approached some other union, probably the local GMB branch, but in any case, it was really important that the workers were organised before full-time union officials came in. Those first few days were tremendous. On the morning of Tuesday the 21st, the workers were a crowd milling around outside the factory, concerned to see that no harm came to their workmates who were occupying, but mostly not at all sure what they might do about it or what might come out of it. By the evening of Wednesday the 22nd, the workers at the gates were a collective force determined to support the occupation and see the struggle through. We also got a families and communities committee set up, though that's never really worked properly. We started to have regular meetings run by the workers, but mostly they were just one person making a speech, reporting what was going on inside the occupation. It wasn't a debate among the workers about strategies. We had the idea of extending the picket to other gates at the factory, but it never openly debated the meetings. I wondered whether we should have been pushier. We dealt with the issues by talking with lots and lots of workers individually and hoping that arguments about uh, about opening all the meetings and extending the picket would have reached a critical mass. We sought a central to develop the workers' control of our own struggle and we knew there was some apprehension among the workers about outsiders. We didn't want to seize a megaphone and start preaching. There were... Those were proper concerns, but maybe we acted too much as a sort of think tank in that period, and we should have been pushier. Ed, it's a clear cut from the political points. It's clear cut from the political point of view is that we should have fought harder for sovereign meetings to be held. We tried to do it, and I don't know what success we would have had if we'd tried harder. Maybe it just had to take some time that idea to percolate through a workforce with no experience of union meetings, let alone democratic and lively union meetings. After the RMT full-time organisers arrived from RMT head office, they started organising worker-only meetings, distinct from the general meetings that were run at the factory gates. At that time, I saw worker-only meetings as a good move, potentially better for the workers developing their own independent voice. In fact, however, the worker-only meeting were just briefings on legal matters from the RMT organisers, not debates among the workers on strategy. Bob, the big lesson of this is that a, is that a politics of working-class self-emancipation involves gi- giving people the skeletons and structures to organise themselves. Dan, Bob is right, but I think we found it quite difficult to combine 
being the people who focused on tactics, strategies and information with making ourselves visible as an independent political element with independent activity that people might want to join. SWP full-timers were pretty relentless about talking to people about joining the SWP and SWP organisers arrived and immediately seized, seized the megaphone to make long speeches about general anti-capitalism and the claimed virtues of their National Shop Stewards Network. While we downplayed that sort of thing in, in favour of trying to get serious conversations about what needed to be done next. Martin, there was a paradox. Our focus was on trying to help get a stronger organisation of the workers and a serious discussion of strategy. Because that was our focus politically, we weren't saying much along the lines of, we will do this for you, though in fact we did lots of practical help things. The SWP, both because they are bigger, a, a bit bigger than AWL, and because they really don't care much about worker self-organisation or having any particular ideas on strategy, could come across as having a lot of a lot to offer because they could ply workers with invitations to go off and speak at campaign against climate change meetings there, here, there and everywhere. A lot of tremendously positive things happened in the in those few days between twentieth twentieth and twenty fourth of July but the Workers' Committee still wasn't functioning well at the point where the RMT arrived. It depended on a very small number of workers, so run off their feet with emergencies that they had little time to think, and they didn't organise meetings of all the workers where the de debate took place. Bob Crow came to the factory gates on Thursday the 23rd, and by Friday the 24th, the full-time officials from RMT head office were there. Ed, <clears throat> the RMT was given was giving very useful support to radical militant action. Even those workers who were in the occupation and initially reluctant to join the RMT after they came out now speak very positively about it. But the RMT was still basically functioning as a service provider, not an agency to help workers organise themselves. The RMT officials could have used the worker-only meetings to help the workers develop their own strategy to take more conscious control of the dispute. They didn't. Then on 8th of August, when we eventually marched into the grounds of the factory beyond the security fence, the RMT officials soon told everyone to get out again. <coughs> Dan, I think there was only... I think there was also a problem about the activity outside in that period from 20th of July to the eviction on the 7th of August, being run just as a support operation for the workers in occupation, the boys on the balcony. Not enough was done to get the Vestas workers who weren't in the occupation to get more involved and to take a bit of ownership over the disputes. Martin, the paradox was that when the RMC officials kept saying the workers have to decide that actually had an anti that actually had an anti democratic effect. Often the workers were not well informed about what the RMT leaders were doing and thinking. It would have been better if the RMT had said to the workers, "This is what we think should happen," and had a debate about it. Promoting workers' control over their own disputes is not about standing back and saying, "Oh, we won't bother you." It's an active process. 
we should have made much more of the general argument for strike committees. We have put a lot of effort into getting strike committees organised in disputes on the tube and fighting to get the RMT top leadership to respect them. We have an amendment to the RMT's rules to be debated at the upcoming conference that says that every dispute should be run by a strike committee. In the period when the RMT officials were on the site and the occupation was in progress from 24th of July until the eviction on the 7th of August, a lot was centred around the two court hearings on 29th of July and 4th of August, where investors sought legal authority for the eviction. One of the things we were arguing in that period was that we should prepare for an eviction and that we should plan in advance for an eviction not being the ends of the dispute, but a signal to escalate the pickets of the factory into a blockade. On 9th of August, two days after the eviction, there was a big meeting of workers and supporters at the Southern Vectors Club in Newport. Mark Smith argued at that meeting for moving to a blockade. We argued for it. The SWP put all their emphasis on calling demonstrations on days of action, 12th of August and 17th of September, but didn't argue against a blockade. So a big meeting agreed to move to a blockade, but, but but it turned out we didn't have the organisation to make it happen in the next few days. There were only a a token few people at the back gates of the factory. Momentum started to ebb. Ed, should we have risked looking pushy and maybe putting some people off by fighting harder for the tactics and the strategy of blockading the factory? Maybe, but there are limits to what we could have achieved from a position of not having an AW member inside the workforce. Also, by that time, some of us were very tired and the most active workers were very tired too. The gulf between the campaign deciding something and that it actually getting done was becoming deep, that was a big organisational flaw. Bob, a new workers' committee was selected at at that 9th of August meeting, and one of its members was designated as responsible for organising the extension of picketing. But within two days, he wasn't on the islands. He was off for some days, speaking at meetings on the mainland, without anyone being chosen to take over his organising job. There were there was a long-standing policy of pillaging key activists, both by the SWP and the RMT, to take them off to do speaking tours and the like, which made it very difficult for the Workers' Committee to function systematically. Vicky. There was a certain inertia about the camp at the roundabout outside the factory's front gates by this point. People had settled into organising the camp almost as an end in itself. It took something of an effort to refocus on the industrial struggle that was still going on. Ed, although no one at the 9th of August meeting argued against blockading the factory or against working to extend the blockade, to the factory <clears throat> at Venture Keys in East Cows, where activists occupied the roof from 4th of August to the 14th of August, I suspect that the extension of the picket from the roundabout was seen as something that was a bit ultra-left, a bit adventurous. 
We hadn't fully won a political argument with the workers about using the industrial muscle to build a blockade. Martin, <coughs> a lot of the workers were very impressed by the publicity they got. After all, most people never got on the front page of the papers at any point in their lives. They don't get government's ministers agreeing to meet them. They don't get front bench politicians like Lib Dem Simon Hughes coming to offer them warm words. I suspect a lot of workers thought if they were if they could just keep on the coverage, they were going to win by sheer force of publicity. The SWP were very much played on that, with their emphasis on the days of action as the key focus and their huge overvaluation of what government's minister Joan Ruddock said when she agreed to meet the RMT and a couple of workers on the 6th of August. Head. A lot of the workers regarded themselves as protesting rather than attempting to get the company in a headlock. And there was a line coming from the SWP leadership that the important thing was creating a noise, putting up a flag, creating a photo opportunity as a focal point for a campaign of public meetings. Martin. So after the eviction on the 7th of August, we didn't really move to an effective extension of the picketing. The action at the factory remained mostly confined to the camp on the roundabout, which wasn't blockading anything. It was bound to lead to some loss of momentum. The day of action on the 12th of August was disappointing on the Isle of Wight. The main demonstration on that day in East Cowes was smaller than earlier ones on 8th of August or at the court hearings. 12th of August was quite well supported elsewhere, yet as we kept on saying at the time, a scattering of meetings, demonstrations and stunts is good, but not a way to force concessions out of a hardline employer or a government. That's what we as AWL spend a lot of our time doing. Meetings, street stalls, small demonstrations. We think such activity is very important to raise awareness and build long-term campaigns. But we don't fool ourselves that it will force the capitalist class into concessions. On the 14th of August, workers got their redundancy money. It had been postponed from the 31st of July. Thanks to the occupation, all workers had got two and a half weeks extra pay and some had extra redundancy money. We said that the redundancy money could tip things one way or the other. People could see the payment as finishing the story. The protest was good, but it's over now. <clears throat> or it could tip, to, could tip people into thinking that they now had nothing to lose and becoming more ready for radical action. In the previous weeks, workers had been inhibiting inhibited from joining the occupation at the Newport factory or starting one in the East Keys, Venture Keys factory because they feared with obvious good cause that such money, such action could lose them their redundancy money. In fact, with the redundancy payments on the 14th of August, things tipped towards an ebb rather than a revival. Too much momentum had been lost for them to tip the other way. Of course, that's to do with the general state of the labour movement. If there had been solidarity strikes, there, things would have been different. Even if there had been proper delegations of trade unionists visiting the picket line rather than individual reps or branch secretaries coming to give supports or donations, that would have changed things. In the event, the campaign was quite heavily reliant 
on an unstated idea that publicity alone would force investors and the government to move. No one wanted to argue against the strategy of blockade blocking the blades held in the factories. But we got a lot of workers saying that investors were happy to let the blades sit there for many months and wouldn't care about their value involved, £700,000. That was turned out to be untrue, but it was another way of saying, I don't really see the point of the blockade. Bob. Again, it's the same question of the campaign not having clear forums where people can get an overview. Questions like this, blocking the blades, extending the action to venture keys, were dealt with in a way where people were licensed to go off and do things if they wanted to, rather than making clear collective decisions. I remember getting very conflicting reports about how much the blades were worth and whether Vesta's was bothered about them at all. Most workers have no clear picture about the business decisions of their employer. The open the books line of argument shouldn't have been made much more central. I think it remains clear that the industrial leverage in this dispute is the blockage, the blockade of the marine gates. Our ability to sustain that remains to be seen. But in a crucial week, six workers were taken to the TUC Congress to conduct a bit of propaganda amongst the trade union bureaucracy instead. The different opinions and perspectives have never really been debated out. The RMT officials never showed any interest in the blockade, and in the last couple of weeks, crucial for the blockade, there have been no RMT officials on the island. At a Campaign Against Climate Change meeting on London, in London on 7th of September, Bob Crow appealed for donations to the Workers' Fund as a way of help, as a way to help compensate the 11 occupiers who investors sacked for their loss of redundancy. He was implicitly saying that the use of the fund for campaigning was secondary and that he didn't see the RMT as using the blockade to push investors to reinstate the redundancy money. Vicky, it's important now to mobilise enough people to go to the blockade so that when the crunch comes, there's enough people there to make a good showing. The company might offer something. That's one scenario. Another scenario, another scenario is that they'll come for the blades and the people and the police in to clear the marine gate. If it comes to that, we want at least 30 or 40 people there for that experience rather than just a dozen. Martin, I think winning reinstatement for the 11 is still possible. The blockade should be seen not as a gesture, but as a tactic with a particular aim in mind. It's important to have a realistic assessment of what can be won now and what can't be. It's also important to start at this stage to develop the next stage about rebuilding the labour movements on the Isle of Wight, especially through the trades councils and organising a proper campaign for jobs. The tax office and Guritz, a factory just across the road from Vestas, already cutting jobs. Jobs are likely to be cut with a school's reorganisation now underway. The postal workers' dispute is about job cuts. There are practical things to be done, and work on them has to start as soon as possible, so that the people who've stuck the Vestas' Vesta's dispute out to the ends go on to the next stage with some energy still fresh rather than staying on the stage until they're so exhausted that they have to step back.
Vesta's worker, Chris Ash. Chris Ash was a worker in at the East Cow's Vesta's factory and one of the occupiers in Newport. He talked to us in mid-August. The last three weeks have not just changed my views, but changed my life. Before, I was just a normal worker. I came into work, I did the job. I didn't really care what I was building. I got paid and I went home. Now I understand that, what we're, that we're doing something for the future, for our kids and our grandkids. It's going to help change the future of the world if we can get this factory nationalised or if we can keep it open. I have no regrets about taking part in the occupation. I'm proud of myself and what I've done. Everyone calls me a hero. I don't feel myself to be a hero, but I certainly wish I could do it all over again with what I know now. I think a lot of unions that got involved in this because it was a green issue. They have been been able to speak out before because they need the workers to step in. It has brought a lot of unions together where before they they were just out for themselves. We need to build up a lot more support and get a lot more people campaigning to push the government and the councils. Wind turbines are important for the future. We're certainly not giving up the fight. I don't know much about the socialist and environmental activism before. I thought it was a matter of tree huggers and eco-warriors. Now I have a lot of respect for the campaigners and the actions of the people who've come to help. I've worked for the company for three years. You get treated like rubbish. To the management, you're just a number. You're not an individual. You get screwed out at every opportunity. In the occupation, they sent us our termination of contract notices with a slice of pizza. When they served the injunction, they went around posting it through people's letterboxes, harassing people's families. They made no attempt to talk to us directly. When I first came across people talking about resisting the closure, I didn't think much of it. I only got involved in the two or three weeks before the occupation. I think a lot of the other workers' views changed in the same way. We came to be friends rather than just colleagues, to stand together and to look out for each other. It brought the island closer together. Five of the other people who were in the occupation and didn't even know before, and now I would count them amongst my best friends. Vesta's worker, Ian Terry. Ian Terry was a worker in the finishing shop at the Vesta's Newport factory and one of the occupiers. He spoke to us in mid-August. I'd say that the views I have now have always been there, but now I've see, seen the chance of a fight, fight back rather than giving up. I've always thought the way things are run was wrong, but before I've never seen a chance for people to stand up together and to change things. It's a matter of organising workers to stand up for themselves. The anti-union laws are against us, but the numbers are in our favour and we have to make sure we get these laws changed. The main priority now is building people's confidence, highlighting to people that they are not on their own and that together we can become much stronger. I knew working for Vestas that the management were wary of unions. I didn't think I realised just how important unions are. After the miners were smashed in 1984-5, a lot of people's confidence in unions went down but there are still good unions out there willing to organise workers and to take up the fight for them. Unite, I think, has been 
being poor because it is too closely affiliated with labour. They didn't want to rock the boat. But that can't be all of it. You had unions affiliated to labour who were who have supported you well and unions that aren't affiliated to labour who haven't. Isn't it also a question of the degree of democracy and accountability in the union and the strength of the rank and file? Yes, you have to make sure the people making the big decisions in the unions can understand the workers' struggles rather than being paid big salaries. The same goes for politicians, doesn't it? They'd be reined in a lot more if they were in the same economic position that we're in. At present, there is obviously a big gap between the full-time union officials and the lives they're able to live and the workers they represent. In this campaign, a combination of many of many different reasons, defiance has brought everyone together. People have started to realise that everything is affected by the rule of profit, how profit dictates how things go. The reason why investors have not been able to do what they've done is that the market is run for profit, not for people. As as in the unions, the people at the top are comfortable. They don't have to think about the people who are being affected by job losses or wage cuts. Human beings aren't brought into the equation. When industry is run for goals rather than profit, when it is run for the usefulness of the things it builds and the goods of the people it employs and of the environment, that is much better. More money would be delivered back into the community. Fester's worker, Tracy Yeats. Tracy Yeats worked in the finishing shop at the Vestas Newport factory and is a member of the RMT Workers' Committee. She spoke to us in mid-August. The last three weeks have taught me that if people work together, we can get things done and we can, as a group, make a change. Perhaps before I would have turned away, I think it's changed me as well as my opinions. I've come to realise how much of a bad employer Vestas were. Before, I tended to believe that the management, what the management said and not what the workforce was saying, but now that has changed. What's made the difference? I suppose at the start it was because you, the activist from outside, showed us how we could do something. Then we had our own way of doing things. If everyone puts their own unique bits in it, it makes a bigger picture, doesn't it? With Vestas, it is the first time I've ever worked for a company. I was always self-employed before, and I worked on my own. I was an area manager for Betterware UK, so I looked at things in a different way. It suited me when the children were younger because I could work from home, but then when they grew up, I looked for something else, and since I've always been green-minded, I came here. I don't believe the company should be allowed to do this. They have no regard for their workers or the community. It's difficult for me to say how this has changed my views of unions because my husband used to be an active trade unionist, a TGWU branch official at Ford in Southampton, and it seemed to me like he was always out on strike. The RMT seems to be quite well organised. My husband is a prison officer now, and he is in the POA, and they don't seem to be well organised or have any clout. Myself, I don't think I would work again for an employer that didn't have a union. I would definitely make sure I was in a union before I worked anywhere else. Now we've got to make sure that the lads who were in occupation get reinstated. 
that has got to be number one priority. I want to see green jobs on the island of some sort. If it can't be Vestas, then some somebody else. I worry about the future of the island community. We already have an aging population here. As jobs go, young families will move away, and before we know it, schools will be closing. Vestas supporter, Jackie Hawkins. Jackie Hawkins is a local environmental and peace activist. She spoke to us in mid-August. What's most surprised me over the last three weeks is that people have remained solid and they have stuck together and not drifted away. The main priority now is new ideas, keeping the campaign fresh so it does not stagnate, staying positive and keeping in mind that we can win. In the island of White, the Tory council have an eco-island policy and keep bleating on about how they want it to be a world-renowned green island. They should grasp this opportunity and keep the factory open, as well as bringing more green jobs to the island. This campaign has got a community together. All sorts of people have contributed by donating food or equipment for the pickets. There is a community building, and I'm hoping that when the planning application for wind, wind turbines on Cheverton Down comes up in October, we can outnumber the NIMBYs. I would like to see a lot of people turn up at County Hall that day. In the last couple of days, there have been lots of socialist and environmental activists coming from the mainland to support the Vestas workers. What do you make of what we've done? It's been great, something I've wanted to see for a long time. The island is a very conservative area. I don't mean only politically conservative. People tend to be wary of mainlanders. I was nervous at first because I'm originally an outsider myself and I know the attitudes you can encounter. But in fact, the people from the mainland have been very well received. I haven't heard any negative comments. That's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. This is not, not just an island issue. It's not just nationwide. It is international. Yesterday, I thought... I heard that we'd had support from young people in Australia. It's fantastic the way it has gone international. Maybe the revolution is going to start at the Isle of Wight. I wouldn't have dreamed it. Vesta's supporter, Mark Chiverton. Mark Chiverton is secretary of the Isle of Wight's Unison Local Government Branch and the Labour prospective parliamentary candidate for the Isle of Wight constituency. He spoke to us in mid-August. We've had good support for strikes and industrial action on the island before, but certainly not this kind of campaign. This is unique, both in its national and international profile, and in the sheer courage, persistence and commitment of the Vestas workers themselves. We need to continue to build support and get more island's people involved. This campaign can be a catalyst for some very positive things on the island. It shows that a group of relatively unorganised workers can achieve great things. A key lesson is that the unions need to be organising and recruiting more, and not just in our traditional areas of strength, and rebuilding links through trades councils. Our local Unison members have been very supportive. We have had quite good numbers attending rallies and demonstrations, and beyond that a huge amount of interest and support behind the scenes. There's been no criticism at all of the branch's position of support for the Vestas workers. We need to keep up the pressure on the local Tory council and the government. 
the local Labour Party can have a role to play here. In some ways it has been a difficult time for the Isle of Wight's Labour Party. We have had a large number of people at the demonstrations as well as working behind the scenes to get channels of communication to Ed Miliband, but it's been embarrassing for the Isle of Wight Labour Party to be in a position where the government comes out with a commitment to lots of new green jobs but won't save the wind turbine blade factories from being closed. The Isle of Wight's council and the local Tory MP have been lamentable in terms of pandering to nimbyism. The government has invested strongly in terms of research and development, but in terms of manufacturing jobs, the response is inadequate. I'd like to see public ownership of the Vestas factories to tide production over, over until such a time as wind turbine demands pickups. If the government is set against the strategy, I think it's essential that there is urgent dialogue between the council and central government and the business community to make sure that the Isle of Wight can continue to show a strong level of employment in green jobs and can preserve the skills that the Vestas workforce has got. I'd call on other Labour parties across the country to come on board for this campaign. I know a number of Labour MPs have signed an early day motion supporting the Vestas workers initiated by John MacDonald, but it would be good to see one or two Labour MPs come to the island and talk to the Vestas workers. It is very important for the credibility of the Labour government that it responds positively to this campaign. Huge sections of the thinking public see the government's stance on green jobs and on investors as a contradiction. I'm sceptical about the Lib Dems claiming support to support this campaign. I think they are quite opportunistic, saying different things in different places and at different times. I would recognise that one or two Lib Dem activists have spent a lot of time on this campaign, but I believe that the wider Labour movement needs to be spearheading the campaign. I want to see a Labour government rather than a Lib Dem government, but I want to see a different sort of Labour government from this one, one that is in touch with its grassroots, and one where there is much more vibrant and active grassroots and trade union campaign which it responds to positively. Vesta's supporter, Lana Moody. Lana Moody is a student at Ride High School. Her father, Justin Moody, was one of the occupiers at the Newport factory. She she spoke to us in mid-August. The last three weeks have been incredible. I've not really had anything to do with environmental activists and all the political groups before, and it has opened my eyes. Reading the socialist papers, I now know that we don't realise how much happens all over the world that we don't hear in the mainstream news. And I've seen how hypocritical it is, the way the government is running the country. My dad did talk to me about it before he went into the occupation, but at first I didn't really know what to think about it. The first few days were absolutely mad, and now the campaign has spread much further all across the world. It is even mentioned in the New York Times. Now we have to keep going, keep spreading the word, getting in more people, making the campaign stronger, coming up with new ideas. We can't just let it fade away. We have to be persistent. All my friends basically agree. At the end of the day, it's our generation that depends on the future jobs. We're all worried that we may have to move off the land. 
The campaign has made people rethink everything. A couple of my friends have helped me leafleting. While I'm going to try to make sure that some of them come to some meetings with me and come to understand more of the politics involved. I've always wanted to get into politics anyway, so this has been my way in, learning by intuition. There haven't been any political groups or environmental groups on the island before, but there should be. Vesta's workers speak out. Mark Smith, working in the finishing shop at the Newport factory, was one of the occupiers. He spoke to us in mid-August. Without a doubt, the last three weeks have changed my view of the world. Firstly, on the question of unions, I probably, I probably never work at a place that didn't want a union, or I'd be very wary of it. We've had support from all different types of people who I'd never thought would support us, people who didn't even know us. It's been really good, and they're all getting along together. They're all pulling towards the same objective. Those who came from the main line came because we saw Vestas as part of a bigger battle about jobs, about workers' rights, and about the future of the planet. You're spot on about that. That's what has brought a lot of people to support us. People can see that from the point of view of the future of the planet, it's dire closing places like this. I'm glad I went into the occupation, even though so far I've lost money from it. If I've done nothing, if I'd done nothing and just walked away, then six months down the line and for the rest of life, I'd be kicking myself thinking about what we could have done. It came to a point where you have to stand up and fight for what you believe is right. If you don't stand up and fight, you just get pushed around. Now we have to keep up the pressure on investors and a lot of pressure on the government. Keep everything going. Build on what we've already achieved. Make it bigger and bigger. We have to get everybody nationally to pull together for us and for themselves. If workers stick together in the future and we all stand up and support each other, then we can change things. You've seen different unions reacting differently in this campaign. I joined Unite before the occupation purely in order to have legal assistance. But then Unite didn't turn up at all for a long time. And when they did, they weren't that interested. Unite people had been told not to get involved. RMPT did turn up and have been a lot more militant. It's a question of the relationship between what you say and what you're actually willing to do.